Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact. The interview that you're about to hear is from Gordy Bunch. He is the Woodlands uh, Township Director. He is a Coast Guard veteran, and he's also the founder of TWFG Financial Services in the Woodlands, Texas. Uh, he, he's built this business, TWFG, for the past 17 years, and he is an extraordinary individual. Uh, as you'll hear in the podcast, he serves others. Uh, he looks at his business as an opportunity to serve people. And he's an incredible individual who's built a uh, half a billion dollar business. And because he wants to serve others, he volunteers his time uh, for an unpaid elected official position to run our township. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy this this interview from a fascinating man, Gordy Bunch. I really appreciate you sitting down with me, Gordy, and, and doing this podcast. I have a a neat little story for you. We did a keynote event last a uh, couple weeks ago, and we had 115 people packed into your training room. And one of the neat things, I was going around talking to people after the event, a couple weeks after, one person that I came across, his name's Eduardo, and he just recently stepped out of corporate America mm-hmm. and started his own business. And he said the biggest takeaway that he got from your event was the first decision in business has to be that it's not going to fail. He said that up until he heard that, that he was giving himself an out. He had a plan B. He, he could go back to corporate. But he said once he heard that, he made a decision. He's not going back. And I thought that was pretty impactful. And that's just one person from our event. So thanks for showing up and giving it your best and inspiring yeah. people. No, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Quick, uh, just, just a curious note. There's a I don't know, a thousand pound samurai statue in your office. <laughs> yeah. What's the story behind that? Uh, so that's a terracotta warrior uh, that I bought from a museum in Cheyenne, China, uh, where the terracotta warriors are. And so these, this is a replica made in the same kilns uh, where the original terracotta warriors were, were uh, made. And uh, that's the general. Uh, you can tell his rank by his hair. And so uh, the emperor, who uh, thought he would rule in the afterlife, uh, built an entire army out of terracotta and uh, wasn't discovered until the 70s. And now there's a huge museum around that site in Cheyenne, China. And my, my wife says, you have to get one of these uh, when you're over there. And so I spent a lot of time negotiating with them and uh, brought the bad boy back. Uh, it's never moved since I put it there. You're right. It's about 1,000 pounds. Interesting. Very cool. Um, I had a neat little article, which I'm going to post in the show notes. It's called uh, Richard Gordy Bunch, an American Hero, Insurance Entrepreneur, and Unpaid Public Servant. So we could do a lot of bio, but this covers a lot, and I'm going to put that in the show notes so people can get a handle on you know everything that you've accomplished. But I wanted to ask you about growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, where'd you grow up? 
Yeah, so my early years, I was in San Diego, California, and uh, around junior high, moved to uh, College Station, Texas. So I'm kind of split. Good. Um, speaking of San Diego, you've got a cool story. Uh, at 19, you and a friend mm-hmm. uh, found out that a war was going to break out, and you guys drove from College Station, Texas, to San Diego at 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Thinking back to that car ride, what, 24 hours, 26 hours? What, what was the conversation like? What were the thoughts? Yeah, so, so the story goes, I, I was managing a restaurant and going yeah. to college at the same time. Uh, my friend worked uh, for me at the restaurant and uh, came home and said, uh, I'm going to go join the Coast Guard. If you want to come, you know, you're welcome to ride along. And uh, he said, sure, why not? And so uh, we actually drove to Houston first. And uh, the recruiting office would never call us back and was never open. So being from San Diego, I was like, well, I know the people in California uh, are always there, so let's just drive out to San Diego and sign out in in my old backyard. And so we did. And uh, I think heading out there, he was 17, uh, and we went on the buddy system. So uh, we got out there and just uh, met with the recruiter. They put in their Miami Vice video, you know, long uh, guns and shotguns and nines on the side and your cigarette boat going through the Florida Keys chasing down the bad guys. And then, of course, we end up in boot camp realizing that that's a very small fraction of the Coast Guard. (laughs) But it was cool. And, uh, you know, we were both excited about an opportunity to serve our country. That's awesome. So I guess after you saw that video, that was was it, huh? You were sold? Well, you know, I was a criminology major. And so law enforcement and public safety was pretty much how I was wired. And, uh, you know, of the services, the Coast Guard had active law enforcement as a full-time mission. So it was really gearing me towards them, uh, human trafficking, drug interdiction, uh, search and rescue. It was just kind of how I I presented myself, how I felt, uh, what I wanted to do with my life at the time. And that was the MOS you got you got involved with was the law enforcement. So in the Coast Guard, there is no MOS for law enforcement. Um, being the smallest of the five uh, services, uh, you you have a normal MOS, and then you have secondary and tertiary uh, roles. So my primary was storekeeper, uh, logistics. I had uh, the keys to all the stuff. If you needed new boots or you know the ship needed a new engine, uh, it went through our department and. Um, yeah, I also was able to take on secondary uh, roles, which would be boarding team member, law enforcement. I uh, went through the law enforcement training center in Petaluma, California, and uh, that authorized me to do federal law enforcement uh, and uh, work in joint task force with Border Patrol, INS, DEA, uh, and other service providers. And what age? What age were you then? Uh, when I went through the boarding team school, I was probably 20, hmm. maybe 21. Working with the DEA, that was, that's got to be... Yeah, I mean, I was low man on the totem pole. I don't want to give any false impressions that I was, you know, the head lieutenant. Uh, I was enlisted, uh, you know, so you, we all start off at the bottom, scrubbing barnacles off the uh, buoys, and you work your way up. So I would say I was tip of the spear, uh, but I wasn't given the commands. Gotcha. That's good. Well, I'm going to jump right in because I know a little bit about some of your experience in the Coast Guard. Uh, you were a part of the 1994 Haitian Rescue so can you give us a couple details about that, and then I have a follow-up question. Sure. So uh, in 1994, uh, there was a coup in Haiti, and the then-president, Jean-Paul Aristide, was ousted. 
the entire infrastructure of the country uh, collapsed, and uh, folks were fleeing, uh, heading towards uh, the Florida coastline. Uh, the people of Haiti uh, speak French, and they were creating, you know, makeshift boats on the beach, uh, boarding them with uh, unsustainable numbers, and then trying to point themselves towards Florida. Uh, then President Clinton. Uh, engaged a, a joint task force of all the services, all five services coordinated together, and the Coast Guard was primary on search and rescue and deterring uh, from the coastal waters. On July 4th, 1994, uh, the largest life-saving mission at sea since Vietnam occurred, and, and it was right alongside our, our ship. Uh, I served on the uh, Coast Guard Cutter Hamilton. Uh, we had over 3,000 migrants in the water that day. Uh, obviously, can't save them all. Uh, the language barrier well, was a challenge. Uh, we provided life vests uh, to all the folks uh, that we could, and um, unfortunately, they did not know how to don a life vest, didn't know how to tie a knot, and before we could communicate and walk them through it, their ship sank next to us. And, you know, with the waters being as clean and clear as they are, you can just see the bodies going down. And so we went to a recovery and rescue mode, uh, and it was a pretty pretty long uh, summer there in 1994. But never will forget, you know, the 4th of July uh, that year. Uh, certainly uh, impactful. Kind of puts a new light on, on every other 4th of July you celebrate. It'll always be there. Yeah, yeah I'll, always, I'll always, the 4th of July will always have an additional meaning to me. Uh, you know, it was a day I know we saved people's lives. It was also a day where I saw, you know, a lot of folks pass. And um, it was also a day where our country's celebrating its, its independence. And, and while serving abroad, I'm watching what happens in other countries that doesn't have the same opportunities that we have here in the USA. So you gain a higher appreciation uh, for our country when you serve abroad. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good, good point. It's hard to appreciate the freedoms that we have until you don't have them. Right. If you could draw one lesson, I'm sure you think about that often, but if you could draw one lesson that you learned from that experience, can you can you share that? You know, the Coast Guard uh, had excellent training, and really, you know, when you uh, do all the general quarters drills uh, throughout the year, uh, you know, sometimes they become redundant and frustrating, you know. Uh, but when it hits the fan, all that drill, all that practice, all that training, you go into to autopilot mode. It's almost like muscle memory with athletes. And uh, we're trained to, to, to act. Uh, the Coast Guard doesn't wait. I didn't have to wait for someone to tell me to go ahead and do the right thing. Uh, they had a thing called uh, TQM. I'm not sure if they had that when you were in the service. But total quality management and really pro, uh, promoted uh, doing the right thing, taking action, not waiting for someone else to tell you the things to do. And so what I saw on, on that day was my shipmates, myself, all involved, just executing the, the training that we had received from the Coast Guard and uh, doing what we were taught to do. And uh, without hesitation, uh, 100% of the, of the ship came together. And you know, serving in any unit, you've got factions, just the way it is. There's no factions when it's in the fan. Everybody's locking, locked in step, you know, turning to and working hard. And uh, so it was really 
the execution of teamwork at its finest uh, and for the finest cause, and that was the saving lives in mass uh, in a one-day period. Wow. That's awesome. Another interesting experience you've shared is um, the opportunity that you had to, uh, to prevent um, uh, Chinese uh, mafia or, or pirates from trafficking humans uh, right. across the, the sea yep. who were carrying sex slaves and drugs and all kinds of bad stuff. Can you share a little, elaborate on that a little? Sure. So the last, the last few patrols I had uh, dealt with human trafficking. And uh, it was the Chinese mafia. Uh, they were called snakeheads. And they would uh, have paid for migration uh, folks on, in a holding tank, and they'd have slaves in another tank. And then on, ab above deck, uh, they had in their uh, main pilot house uh, young girls being conditioned for the sex trade. And so, you know, the Coast Guard and other countries, uh, South and Central America, uh, were, were patrolling uh, and looking for. Uh, migrant uh, vessels, and uh, it was Operation Able Manor, is uh, what that was under. And uh, well, like Able Manor, that might have been uh, uh, the Haitians. I'm not sure the Chinese migration one actually had a name. Uh, it uh, isn't something that's well publicly discussed. Um, INS uh, would come in, and uh, Border Patrol would come on board, and. We wouldn't necessarily know exactly where we were going. I had just gotten married, uh, told my wife I was going to Alaska, and I ended up off the coast of El Salvador. And, uh, you know, it's uh, really uh, an eye-opening experience to see modern-day slavery in existence. Uh, you know, we all think of Amistad and, uh, you know, the atrocities of, of African slavery in, in the Western Hemisphere. And we, we don't really recognize today that slavery still exists and still exists in this country. And it comes through our ports primarily. Uh, it also comes across our land borders. And, uh, you know, stepping on a ship and seeing the conditions of, you know, boys, I think the youngest probably might have been 8 to 10 range. It's hard to tell when they're dehydrated and malnutritioned how old they actually are. And I think, you know, in the migrant trans transfer uh, pen, I think the oldest people were in their probably 40s. And so you had a very uh, distinctly different set of folks on board, folks who paid to get on board, and then people who were just ripped out of their villages, away from their families, never to be seen again, to put into long-term sweatshops, either in, in Central America, South America, or even in the United States. And um, so being able to participate in their liberation uh, probably was, you know, it's almost a tie with the Haitians because you're saving people in real time there. Um, but to liberate someone from the sex trade and long-term, uh, you know, sweatshops, and um, I think that was that was pretty cool, and I was very happy to be there. I get a lot of flack because I have a couple pictures from the Chinese slave ship, mm -hmm. and I'm smiling. And uh, I remember uh, I had that in one of my campaigns, and someone was like, How are you, why are you smiling next to all these half-naked Chinese people? I said, man, it's liberated them from slavery, and I was the light in the dark. Wow. And, you know, when I get on those little you know, rubber boats to, to go jump them, I'm like, all right, God, let's go. You know, just uh, whatever whatever your will is, let it be. Let's, let's do this. And, of course, uh, I, I didn't speak Chinese at the time, uh, but I did learn a little bit of Chinese. Um, and would work on uh, a phonetic 
translation to try to be able to communicate with them. And it was it was a good experience. And you know, I'm sad that we don't stop more of that traffic. I think uh, our estimate is less than five percent of human trafficking over the seas is actually interdicted. And so that's pretty demoralizing when you realize, hey, I'm, gra- I'm glad we saved these folks, but what about the other 95% that we miss? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, um, I want to just switch gears a little bit and talk about the military experience and if you think that prepared you from, for business uh, and how, how that prepared you for business. You know, uh, I was fairly entrepreneurial prior to going to the military, um, you know, from lemonade stand turned beer joint uh, to uh, selling candy before they had vending machines. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but keggers in the woods, you know, plastic cup for five bucks, you can make a lot of money. Uh, but so I was always very entrepreneurial. I always had work ethic. Um, I was driven to work. Uh, that's why when I got in the military, taking on the extra job duties was not a big deal. You know, I, Storekeeper was my primary rate, uh, boarding team member, uh, backup EMT on the flight deck, ship's barber, uh, enlisted club manager. <laughs> I mean, you know, you could pay me to take your duty. Uh, I had no, no qualms about working, you know, straight through. And uh, so I think what the military did was, was basically take what was already there inside of me uh, and kind of provide it some focus. Uh, I was not doing well in college my first year, so it's it's uh, it, it was interesting to see how moving away and, and getting that space to actually do stuff of meaning, right? So it was great. I was running a restaurant. I was going to school. But I was still around a largely a lot of my friends that I grew up with and went to high school with. Uh, and uh, the military allows you to do things at a younger age than the private sector does. You know, you're, you're get through boot camp and, yeah, you're low man on the totem pole and you're asked to do demeaning tasks, which everybody's a rite of passage. That part I did not really enjoy. Uh, and it was actually being disciplined uh, that lifted me up. Uh, I got in trouble for uh, damaging some lawn equipment. I don't know if I told you this story. In, in the uh, Coast Guard? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Who, 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 who goes in the Coast Guard to mow lawns and, and weedy, right? I want to hear about it. Yeah, so uh, I got assigned to the support center in New Orleans, and uh, you know, my first my first duty assignment was basically janitorial. And, uh, you know, I hadn't had to do that kind of work in a long time. I was running restaurants, not, you know, doing the, uh, the uh, entry-level positions, because I was... It was a little shocking. Um, but, you know, I, I decided I didn't really want to be a lawn boy. And because uh, the last time I mowed a lawn, I was 12. And uh, so I might have damaged some lawn equipment to avoid it. And to be punished, I, I was uh, sent outside to repaint all the yellow parking lot lines in the parking lot of our base. And... Uh, I still have the yellow paint on my uh, my boots uh, from that experience. The uh, going out there with my board, painting the lines. Gentleman walks up to me. How's it going? I'm like, it effing sucks. And then I looked up. Sorry, it effing sucks, sir. Uh, Lieutenant uh, in, was intrigued by my <laughs> response. Not used to having you know that kind of interaction. Just looked at me and he's like, all right, I got to hear it. What's the deal? 
And I just rattled off. I was like, you know, I joined the Coast Guard to do stuff. This, you know, mowing lawns and weed eating isn't what I, you know, joined for. I joined to, you know, go take down the bad guys, save the good guys, and protect this country. You should be outsourcing lawn maintenance to the 12-year-olds in the neighborhood instead of the professional people who just, you know, sign on the line to give their lives for this country. And uh, so I got more to offer than what this particular unit I'm with is, is going to utilize me for. So he walks off, comes out a couple hours later. I'm almost done with my lines. He looks at me. He's like, hey, Bunch. Like, yes, sir. So you think you're that good? I said, I do, sir. He goes, all right, show up on the other side of the base. I just had you transferred to my unit. We'll see how good you are. And so Lieutenant Williams pulled me out of a dark spot. Uh, it was a horrible unit to be in. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but nobody wants to be a lawn maintenance person. And moved me to the operational side of the base. Emergency response team, uh, District 8, hurricane flood relief, uh, emergency repairs for cutters 110 feet and below. This was where the world was being met with the operational side of the Coast Guard. And so I got to be a first responder for Hurricane Andrew. I got to work on the plans for uh, the actual response if a hurricane hit New Orleans, which became Katrina. Um, those day boards that you see in the intercoastal waterways, I got to construct a lot of those. Uh, and uh, I was actually able to do work that was meaningful. And uh, Mr. Williams saw a lot of potential in me, so he sent me through all the GSA accounting schools and had me qualified to be a contracting officer, which in the military or, or any government service allows you to spend government funds. And uh, you know, without his pulling me out of that parking lot, putting me over into his unit, and then allowing me to succeed and then investing in me, I'm not sure I would have had the same long-term military experience if it hadn't been for his intervention. And, and what I take away from that particular experience has stuck with me my whole life. Right guy, wrong job. I use it here in this company. If I have someone who's throwing around some noise, right, I don't just judge them based on their immediate reaction. I now ask those questions. All right, tell me, what's really going on here? What's behind this, you know, it happens sucks, sir? And often I find I got the right people in the wrong role. People with, with, with amount of, of talent and ability to do more. And they're being held down by others or they're just in the wrong place. And sometimes they don't really belong here, but that's okay. You can cut to it. And, and give people an opportunity to succeed where they should be. So do I have the right person in the right job it is something that, that stuck with me from that experience. So did you hang on to those boots that have yellow paint on them? I did, yeah. For I know. that specific reason? No, I, I don't get rid of anything. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I think my wife may have thrown them away now. Okay. Uh, my uh, my dress, dress uh, shoes dry rotted and fell, fell apart as I was walking somebody down the aisle. Apparently, there is an expiration life on shoes, and I found it at, uh, at Betty's wedding. <laughs> so, I, I don't know if I still have them or not, but I, I had them. I didn't throw them away. So, if they're missing, they got lost in a, in a move. I want to go back real quick because uh, you, you mentioned something that I want to hit on, and that's uh, hanging on to an employee 
or deciding to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, so how do you make that decision? Do you, is there a test or how do you? So, you know, you, you want to have a culture of opportunity, right? And, you know, this we talked about the Peter principle a little bit, and some people get promoted beyond their competency. And some people don't know that they don't have that competency. So I give people an opportunity to either learn and grow uh, or fail, right? And if they fail, is there a position that they actually are right for within the group? And if there is, then redirect them right into that position. And if there's not a position for them or if there's not a skill set match for the job that they're doing, we have to replace them. You know, if, if you look at it in a, in a military standpoint, if, you know, nobody could drive our boat, right, because the one guy we hired to drive the boat doesn't know how to drive a boat, we got to get someone who can drive the boat. Otherwise, the unit doesn't move, right. right? And so you have to be able to prune and pick out the people that are not capable of doing specific roles. And as you get into a larger company, you have to have more specialized skill sets. So what somebody might have been capable of being a, a contributor for in, in different sizes of organizations, in a larger organization they may not be qualified or capable of performing at that higher level. And so it may not even be that you have somebody you need to get rid of, it's just you have somebody that you outgrew. And, you know, I try to provide training and opportunity. They can either take it or not. But at the end of the day, the organization has to be able to, to get what it needs. So you have to have people on board with the right skill sets, the right attitudes, and the right cultural fit. Otherwise, they become a, a drag on your business. I think that I've heard you talk about the uh, Peter principle a couple times. Can you just share a little bit more about that and how it applies to you, how you use it? Yeah, so, you know, the Peter principle is, is promoting people beyond their skill sets, right? You're like me as a boot. I just came right out of boot camp, and all of a sudden you make me the – captain or, or colonel of a, you know, a division, that, and it's getting ready to go into battle. Mm. I just got out of boot camp, right? Sure, we had limited combat training and, you know, some overview of what the military is about, but should I be, you know, the colonel or captain of, of any unit? No. And what happens in small businesses that grow too quickly is you start off as a small, small team, small unit, right, recon group. You guys can manage the five to ten people, and you're cohesive, and everybody gets along. But when you jump up into the 50 to 100 to 1,000 type organization, that's a different skill set. And not often enough do people recognize that, hey, man, you might have been a great team leader at five to ten people, but when it got to 15, 20, 25, 30, you're, still, you're only still good with ten which means the rest of your unit or the rest of your team that is now larger isn't getting what they need. And so you have to be able to identify the people that can grow and, the, and then reposition the people that can't. Um, and a lot of times that means you have to bring in people from outside. One of the things I think the military does very well is uh, maybe we underappreciated it is the transferring around as you make rank. Because what happens in, in small companies that become large companies, if you were the you know, receptionist and now you're the operations manager, there's a different level of respect. Some people will always see you as the receptionist, right? Sure. That's why when you go and you get your MOS, you've got to go somewhere else usually, right? You make great, you're out. You're no longer the boot. You're no longer the, the, you know, the person that doesn't have rank. Um, and 
you know, in companies, you, you have to bring in people from the outside too, usually because you need someone who's been a colonel or been a lieutenant, uh, you know, to be in a position that has grown that needs that now skill set and talent. And if you can develop them from within, that's awesome. Uh, but it's difficult for people to gain experiences they've never had. We're going to get into some about um, about the success your company has had, but I want to ask you before we go there is, is when you think of success, who or what comes to mind for you? Uh, you know, who who's successful? Your definition. Yeah, well... My definition of success is less monetary, right? It's more about, uh, I think, trying to look at balanced, successful people. You know, everybody turns to a Buffett or a Gates or, uh, you know, Starbucks or, I mean, sure, they've, they've got scale and they've got you know, profitability and, and size and innovation. Apple, Steve Jobs. Uh, I don't look at Steve Jobs as a success. I think the products that he designed are successful, but he as a being, you know, forego any real quality of life with any meaningful relationships. You know, his, his apple was more important than his family. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's not, not how I would look at success. Um, you know, Gates is probably a better example because he recognized that you know, he would become his own Peter, principled guy, and he kind of steps away from Microsoft, uh, hires professional management, spends more time on his Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, doing charitable work, and uh, you know, time with his family was more important than having to be the man at Microsoft. Now, I'm pretty confident early on he was as rabid of a workaholic as anybody else, uh, but eventually he did, you know, pull himself back. Uh, and step away from the day-to-day operations, still owning it, uh, still participating, but not having to be there on a daily basis so he can prioritize his family and his foundation work uh, over his his corporate life. To me, that's kind of what I'm looking for in life long-term, is that balance. There's no way that this company is what it is today if I didn't put the blinders on and do the rabid workaholic, you know, run for the first five to seven years. You just can't get there without that kind of effort. But when you get over those hurdles, having the ability to step back and say, I, re- I need to rebalance my life. You know, this can't be that important for me forever. All I'll get is bigger, richer, whatever, but I won't be any happier and I won't be any key contributing to anybody else's life. So I've made that transition a while ago, and that's why now I do the public service with our township. That's why I have more time with my family. Um, And I also look at what's the impact of what this business is doing for the people that work here for us and the customers that that we interact with on the outside. And uh, I met a guy uh, before I started this company. He volunteered. He had a life goal of helping 10 people become millionaires. And, you know, I'm I'm a quick read, so I'm like, sure, I'll I'll volunteer. Let me be one. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, he didn't end up helping me become a millionaire, but I still know him. So I told him if he ever needs to cheat his list and he's nine and he's about to die and he wants to throw in a tenth, I said, I'll, I'll convince people that you were the guy that helped me get here so that you can have your ten. But, but in retrospect, I looked at how is my business helping the people that partner with us? We have 350 locations. Each of those locations have a partner in them. 
And as I started looking at how they've grown their business and their economics for their families, I'm like, wow, I've created hundreds of millionaires, not even knowing it, not even having that as an established goal. And so when I look at the work we do here as a company, it's like we're doing awesome things for the people who work in this office, but we're also creating family wealth and opportunity for our partners out in the field. And that's pretty meaningful work. And what we do, in, because we're an insurance business, is still a little bit of Coast Guardish, right? Hurricanes, floods, they're out there first responding. We're out there doing the triage the day after. We're the folks that come in with the capital to help the community rebuild, the house get rebuilt, the business reopen, the income to live elsewhere while that's occurring, or to pay payroll when you don't have your business open. So it's it's an interesting transition from first responder to active participant in the same work. That's interesting. <clears throat> so get moving on a little bit to the business. Uh, in 2001, you used $10,000 of your own savings. Mm -hmm. You stepped out in faith and said, I'm going to leave corporate America, yep. and I'm going to start what is now the Woodlands uh, Financial Group. Um, tell me about the early days, and we're going to kind of progress through that, but tell me about the early days. So I was an executive at Peru, a prudential insurance company, The Rock, and uh, they were going through their transition eventually to go public. Um, I wasn't too fond of their go-forward plan. Um, and decided that I, I would just create my own future. So I remember quitting uh, and calling my wife from the parking garage. Uh, we had a, a uh, our first son who was less than a year old. I remember talking to Michelle and saying, uh, take Greg to the doctor, get all his shots, <laughs> get all his medication, uh, do the same for you because in three days we have no health insurance. And uh, she's like, whoa, I thought you were pretty stable there. I'm like, oh, I'm totally fine. They would they didn't fire me. I, I quit. I want, I want to do something for us. And so, you know, early on it was, there, there's no money, right? There's no people. Uh, I had a folding chair and a folding uh, uh, table and uh, started laying out the plans. And, uh, you know, we worked very quickly on understanding that the only way this business was to succeed uh, was to live on its cash flows, not, not build a a deficit budget, but what can we actually realize and and, and uh, uh, cash, and our budget would be based only on those things, and so we went lean. And fortunately for us, uh, Michelle and I have never lived beyond our means. We were still in our first house. Uh, we didn't have debt, and it was that was all all intentional actions. You know, we wanted to always be in a position uh, to not be uh, burdened by debt or monthly overhead burdens. And so that freed us to do uh, what we have today. And I remember, uh, you know, working to talking to carriers, insurance companies on trying to do business with us. And, you know, I had this idea and most people thought I was nuts. Uh, you know, they would placate me and go, yeah, that's nice, Gordy. Uh, can't believe that you're saying that out loud. Uh, so the, the retail business model we created did not really exist in the industry. Um, you either worked for a carrier or you were solely independent. And uh, we created a company that did essentially uh, a, a bridge of the two, right? So you think about a uh, State Farm agent. They only work for State Farm. They only sell State Farm insurance. That's it. You go into their office, you're going to get a very dedicated State Farm person, and you're going to get a very dedicated 
State Farm experience. If you go to an independent agency, you're going to get this, this, or that, but not the entire universe of independent offering because one office can't justify that many companies. So I created something in between. We're independent, uh, but we essentially have the marketplace as a whole. And so in our offices, uh, they only sell through us, but through us, they get access to everything. And so it's more of a, a, a compromised uh, business model. And uh, it's working out very well. Uh, we have much higher closing ratios with our prospective clients, a higher retention ratio because we can serve our clients' needs rather than a single carrier's needs or only limited carrier's needs, and uh, put us in a position to say, look, what's in the best interest of our client is our business model. And whether that's this company, this company, or that company, that's the way we're going to perform. And uh, so it, it worked. You know, it took time. Took years. Now there's a lot of people out there that emulate what we're doing, um, and even some of the early insurance execs. You know, at my last conference, uh, one of them got up and said, "I thought he was crazy," and now I'm sitting here in a room of 650 people uh, and 49 markets, and you know, approaching you know over half a billion dollars of premium, and wow, you know, so it worked because it was fair. The people who we partner with. I've never changed any of their contracts. Uh, we, we have the same deal we had 17 years ago. And uh, so there's integrity, authenticity in it. Uh, we're in it together. We care about their, their outcome, right? We want them to make it. And, uh, you know, we're more of a family-oriented business than, than the insurance experience usually is. So today, 17 years later, after uh, after you stepped out in faith and, and started your company, you guys, it looks like, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are ranked in the top 10 of 38,000 independent agents or independent uh, property and casualty companies. What do, you, what do you attribute that success to? I mean, you, sometimes it, it can take multi-generations to grow to, to that, to the top 10. Yeah. What do you attribute that? So I think, you know, being first in the market is always an advantage um, because there wasn't a lot of folks doing what we do today. Uh, we were early, early, we were not just early adopters, we were the creator of a model that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're going out and having conversations. And, and having been a agent myself, I, I could speak their language. It's like, no, I, I totally understand what your needs are because I am you. And I know what the deficiencies are in these other relationships, and I understand what the complexities are of running a business, and how can we leverage our combined strength into an economy of scale that allows you to be more profitable working with us than you would have been without us. And so proving those models out uh, when someone's considering making a change in their career, I have 350 people they can call and say, what's it like? And now we can show them the history and the track record of success, so it's it's been a lot easier to get people to come on to our team, join our family, uh, because we were out there first. It's it, having a long runway, and having a long term success. Uh, people want to be part of successful organizations, and so you know it was it was intentional that we would continue to grow. Um, we kept investing in technology and people, uh, and expanding and, and reinventing ourselves, you know, every year into what's now the most important. Uh, responsive need of our distribution partners. 
Let's not go out and tell them what we think they need. Let's ask them what they need, and then let's try to deliver uh, on that for them. And so, like, today, 17 years ago, you know, Facebook wasn't a thing. LinkedIn wasn't a thing. Social media, advertising, marketing, you know, it wasn't. It was centers of influence and shaking hands and kissing babies. And, you know, going to people's houses or offices to get them to sign paperwork. And now there's this thing called DocuSign. So just, you know, you go back uh, and think about 17 years of technology evolution in any industry, right? Blockbuster still existed. Now it's Netflix, right, or Redbox. And so we're constantly having to innovate. And because we kind of know what we want and what we're doing from a customer experience and from an agency experience, we're creating solutions along that value chain. And, And our goal is always to be a year or two ahead of the industry or our competition. And so I think that makes us attractive to join. Good, good stuff. You're the, you're the uh, founder and CEO. You built the company from one to how many how many agents? So in, in total, there's four operating entities here. Okay. And if you add our retail agencies, their support staff, our independent agents through our wholesale channel, it's about 5,000. And you're a humble guy, and I don't just say that because I'm here interviewing you. I get that from other people. For example, uh, you came to an event where we had a leadership speaker mm-hmm. here in uh, the Woodlands, and a friend of mine came up and chatted with you. He said, I was talking to Gordy for 20 minutes before I ever knew he, he owned a half a billion company and help, helps run the Woodlands. Um, he's just a humble guy. So my question is how, one, where, did you see that modeled somewhere and you, and you grabbed onto that, or... Where does that come from, and why is it important to run in a big company? Uh, you know, my friends are probably the best people to ask on, on the humility factor part. I mean, my wife would tell you I'm probably not humble, but uh, mostly because, you know, she has to deal with me every day. Sure. Uh, I don't want anything to change who I am, right? Who I am should not be about how big our company is, how big our bank account is. Uh, what I'm doing politically or what's happening around me. Uh, I wanted to be solid and, and found and, and basically grounded in, in who I am as a person. So when I look at it, uh, I don't walk out and say, oh, I'm this or I'm that. You know, people will try to call me Mr. Bunch. I'm like, oh, just call me Gordy. Even in the Coast Guard, where everybody goes by their last name, from my CEO down in my units, all of them called me Gordy because I knew that that's who I am, right? I'm not Bunch. I'm not Petty Officer Bunch. I'm not Seaman Bunch. I'm not Chairman Bunch. I'm not CEO Bunch. I'm Gordy. And so to me, just being comfortable with who I am, I don't need the titles or to go around and try to make people think more of me. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, really in the, in the, in the political spectrum, I don't really use our business as, as really a reason to, to support me. I try to use, hey, what am I doing for our community through these political roles that are reasons to support me in this particular role? Am I successful in this role? It shouldn't matter if I have success elsewhere. Am I doing the right things here? And, you know, I guess I'm just comfortable in my own skin and I, I just see people as people. Um, we lived in Southern California. I know my mom, she owned a salon. Uh, she had famous clients. Uh, I remember uh, meeting uh, Debbie Reynolds. That's uh, she introduced her as Pris- Princess Leia's mother. And I was like, "What's up?" 
and just kept on walking. Uh-huh. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to look at people as false idols. I guess, right? We're all just people. We all put our pants on the same way. And uh, you know, I've, I look at uh, who I am as, as am I as balanced in my relationship with God, with my family, with my business relationships, with our community. That's more important to me than a title. At the end of the day, that's good. Yeah, um, I want to talk to you about building a good team because you got. I've met a couple of the people you surround yourself with, only a couple, but they seem successful. They're they seem uh, happy. Um, how? What, what's a, what's a good key for somebody trying to surround themselves with a good team? What would you use? You know, a long time ago, I used to use personality tests and, you know, cognitive tests to make sure we had good fits. Um, You know, it's interesting because we have in our executive team, we have three what I would call emotionally uh, oriented uh, executives, and then we have three highly analytical executives. And so there's different personality types. And it's interesting. I got an even mix of of the, the two extremes. And it's the blending of those together, right? We, we need the emotional, empathetic viewpoint, and we need the hard, hardened, analytical reality viewpoint, and we need to marry those two together to come up with what's the right solution, what's the best solution. Mm-hmm. If you have all, I don't want everybody thinking like I do. Uh, one, I wouldn't work with myself, <laughs> not because I'm not a team player, but you know, you, you need people with different perspectives, different experiences, different personality types. Otherwise, you're isolating your audience and your feedback into a smaller segment of society. And there is no one way to do things, and there's no one way to perceive things. Uh, so I think balancing your team out with different different personality types, different backgrounds and experiences, uh, various size of organizations, uh, you get a little bit more fluid feedback, more relevant, relevant feedback. You know, if, if nobody on my executive team, only one on our executive team has been here forever, uh, the second longest tenured person just made 10 years, and the other uh, four uh, are all less than uh, four years. So, you know, the, the, the top layer of our company is a lot of folks from other places that we brought in over time. And, you know, they'll come into the conversation, well, well over here, this is how things were working, and I'll appreciate that experience. And I'll say, well, here's how I think we can do better than that. Yeah, that might work, you know. Um, so you have to have collaboration. Uh, I, I tell them all it's okay to tell me what you think. I may immediately react less than happy, but I still want to hear it. I don't want a bunch of yes people. Tell me why it won't work. Tell me why it's a bad idea. Um, or tell me how my idea can be better than the idea I came up with. Uh, so for my core team, it's really about we need to have those direct dialogue and they have to be able to contribute. You know, a, a team isn't made up of one person. You need leadership, but you also, a leader also listens. Interesting. I want to just, um, you, you hit on it a little bit earlier, you serving uh, as the township director. So after you uh, served in the military and after you built a half a billion dollar company, you decided to run for um, an office that's unpaid. <laughs> yeah. T- tell me about that. Like, why why you did it, and, um, yeah, t- tell me about the why. Well, I mean, 
I wanted to be able to, to give back and, and serve our community. It was part of my back to my rebalancing, where when you get to a certain point and you have to get rebalanced, I was overbalanced in, in the corporate world or the, in this business, underbalanced in community, underbalanced in quality time with my family. And I also want to demonstrate to, to our kids that the broader balanced lifestyle isn't dad goes to work at 6 a.m., gets home at 10 p.m., and great, your college is paid for, but you have no idea who your dad is, mm -hmm. right? So so we engaged, you know, prior to going into public service, we were already engaged in, you know, dealing with different charity groups so they could see some of that part of our, of our lives living out. But it's more than that, too, right? Going to charity galas and donating money to different groups isn't the same as physically showing up in people's space and, you know, actually committing your time, right? My time is more valuable than money. And so if I can step away from work and go give my time to our community for no compensation, uh, it was a pretty good acid test on how committed was I to being balanced. I'm not there for anything except for to serve the people that live here and to do what's right for this community. And uh, take the grief that comes with that and, you know, be, be okay with it. Yeah, and you, you've done good. I've read um, that uh, because you're a no-debt guy, you've helped decrease the debt for the township. Debt has been decreased almost 40% since I was elected. And how long has that been? How long ago? Uh, six years. Six years. Wow. It was over 115000 of debt. Now it's below $70 million. And uh, our tax rate when I was elected uh, was 32 and a half cents, and now it's 23 cents. So 150 million in debt. 115 yeah. million down to less than 70. Gotcha. Wow, that's that's a big deal. That's a big well, the, deal. The the cool part for me is debt reduction and tax rate reduction. You know, uh, in Texas, property tax values really impact your bill, mm -hmm. and our budgeting process, uh, we've been able to lower our tax rate more than the increases in the appraisal values. So our homeowners, six years after I've been elected, are actually paying less than they did six years ago for the same or better services than we had when I started. We've improved the quality of our parks. I'm not sure if you've been out to the any of our sports fields, but yeah. the uh, AstroTurf uh, and, and the expansion of that was one of the first uh, projects that I initiated. So you're saying it's possible to improve your quality of life and decrease your debt at the same time. It's yes. Doable. It's called prioritization. And if, you're, if you don't get, get into things that are outside your wheelhouse, what are we chartered to do? What is, what is the function of local government? What are the commitments we have contractually from the assumption of our homeowners associations? What is the level of service expectations of the community that we live in? And these are all high bars, right? We have a top-rated fire department. I mean, we're tied for first place in the country with 60 other fire departments. Uh, we have, you know, top-rated amenities from parks and recreational pools and pathways and, you know, local local uh, uh, parks and then village-wide parks. Uh, you know, we are uh, a safe community when you look at the crime statistics comparative to other, other size of population centers. So, to me, we are providing at the community level, the highest of every level of service expectation possible and still able to manage debt, manage rate, because we don't go off into ditches that don't belong to us. And what you see with a lot of government entities, uh, they fail to plan and they need your jump on every opportunity that comes to them. There may or may not be 
uh, part of what their core function is. And uh, one of the things I think our budget process does for this community that's also good for businesses is we have a capital reserve fund uh, at the township level. And so think about all the different governments that are out there. And what you hear about most cities is they are underfunded pension plans, uh, they have uh, unacknowledged liabilities, and they're all essentially bankrupt but don't want to acknowledge it. In the township, we have no unfunded liabilities, none. Uh, we have a 30-year capital reserve that looks out into the future and says, you know what, here's all the levels of services that are super high uh, that our community wants. Just because we have an awesome pool today doesn't mean we don't want the pool to be awesome in 10 years. So we have a useful life replacement expectation for all of the amenities in the community. Our fire department, those, those fire trucks have a useful life. So we took all these known future expenses and said, based on our levels of service and our expectations in our community, we're going to buy a new ladder truck, we're going to refurbish a new park, we're going to be doing all these things on a continual basis, and we pre-funded it. So we don't have to issue new debt to do the things that our community already expects. And that allows our tax rate to be very stable. And just for people who are, who, who are listening, um, who may not be in this area, uh, we're in the Woodlands, Texas, and it's rated the number seven uh, most desired community. We've got multiple Fortune 500 companies here, uh, to name a couple, Anadarko, Exxon's right here, Huntsman's here. Um, it's a pretty dynamic community. Yes. It's beautiful. I mean, when I walk through the woodlands, I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate to be able to live here. And I don't make a lot of money. And I can still afford to live in the number seven community in the United States, most desired community in the United States. So how do we keep, how do we keep it that way? Well, you know, part of that is if you look at the way we, we, we structured our budgets, is we're almost guaranteeing it to remain in that high level of service, high quality, uh, you know, because we're pre-funding it. Where, where cities and government start to cut back on services, it's usually a cash flow issue. Well, if you have a operating reserve and you have a capital reserve that funds pretty much everything we expect to have as a community for a 30-year basis, we're, we're, it's very, I can very confidently say all the things we have today we will have tomorrow and the next year and the next year. And for the foreseeable future, so long as future boards or, or city councils continue this budgeting process, we use a five-year near-term outlook and a 30-year useful life return on our cap. And so we have a very conservative approach. Most companies would not even budget this way because that's capital that you're putting aside. You know, companies are more aggressive. They more like to use debt. But communities shouldn't be put in that position. Good, good stuff. Well, we, we talked about the military, a little bit about business, and then your role as the township director. Um, I've heard you publicly give credit to God for your success. Can you share more about that? Yeah, so I, I told you when I'd when I'd go underway uh, and, and go on operations, you know, before I got on the boat, it was always God's will, mm -hmm. let's go. Uh, I'm good with whatever happens. And uh, when uh, I got out of the military and moved to the Woodlands, uh, I call it divine intervention because I was still in gung-ho mode. Um, but uh, my resume ended up in the wrong P.O. box and uh, put me into the insurance industry. So you applied for one job? 
I applied to be the comptroller for the city of Conroe, and my resume ended up in the Texas Farm Bureau Insurance Company's P.O. Box. And so I got a call from a guy named Richard Haas uh, asking about if I wanted to be an insurance agent. I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And frankly, I thought he was the Farmers Insurance Group because I'd never heard of a Texas Farm Bureau before. Um, but, you know, I was on what they call as terminal leave. That's where you're still being paid uh, as part of the military. I saved up a lot of my, my, my uh, vacation. And, you know, met with him, and he, you know, presented me the unlimited income potential of insurance, a career I had never thought of. And uh, I said, fine. And so the offer was go get your insurance licenses and come back and we'll hire you. Uh, no benefits, straight commission, uh, but unlimited income. And so I went and bought the books, uh, self-studied. On the way to the test, I said, God, if you want me to be an insurance agent, I guess I'll pass. <laughs> and so kept passing test after test after test. And today I have just about every license uh, that exists in the insurance space from uh, property and casualty, life and health, general agency, uh, surplus lines, Lloyd's cover holder, insurance carrier, um, and but yeah, it started with divine intervention. Uh, I, I was not looking for a career in insurance, and uh, I'm grateful for God's wisdom in redirecting me away from guns and vests uh, into a different way to serve uh, people that are in need. And that's what this is about. I often, and that, that's more of a question, but I often ask people who served. Um, and then move into a corporate role where they're making a bunch of money. Do you, do you ever miss the service? Do you ever miss being a part of something bigger than yourself? And did you miss that? Uh, well, I mean, here, you know, I, I get to go into people's houses after they've been burned down. Um, you know, if a tornado rips up a community, I get to show up and in that time of crisis be the calm in that storm. So I still get to do, to me, uh, and I share this with our, with our field people, it's like, you know, we are first responders. When you look at the active who can get into a catastrophe area post-event, insurance is one of the few people, along with the electrical company, that gets to go in there and start assessing damage and starting to help the healing and rebuilding process. And so I get to provide that empathy and that resource to people after it, right? We all think first responder, we see the boats, they've taken them off the roof. Well, what happens when the water recedes? Mm -hmm. The house is demolished and the person's back on, on solid ground. But their catastrophe hasn't ended. The boat ride was the beginning. We get to walk them through the end. So I still I still see what we do as service. Yeah. No, I can tell. When I ask you that question about being a part of something bigger, you kind of light up. So yeah. I can see it, it, it's got to be more than a, you're building a, a successful company. Right. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, when, when we have questions on coverage, we, we err on the side of our client. And, you know, that comes out of my pocket, and I'm okay with that. Let me ask you about your success. You've had quite a bit. You're a young guy. Um, how do you gauge your success? Is there a litmus, litmus test where you say, okay, I was successful this year because of this? Is there some kind of gauge? I think when you're young, you know, everybody wants to keep score. Um, you know, so I had goals. Uh, and, you know, if I hit these certain goals, then I'm set. And, you know, the, the, the people have false false impressions of their future selves, right? I mean, I remember when I was a kid, if I ever made $50,000 a year, I was going to get myself a BMW. I still don't have a BMW. I can afford one, but I just don't have one. 
you know, and then I remember, you know, the next goal was when I hit so much of an income level, I'm getting that Porsche 911. I don't own a Porsche. Uh, and it, it's kind of a funny story because I told my wife about that. And, uh, you know, she said, you don't need a Porsche. And she was right, I don't. And, and actually went and test drove a Porsche. Didn't even like it. Now, the guy at the dealership says, I have never had a person come in here and test drive a Porsche tell me they didn't like the car. And uh, I said, well, there's a couple of reasons I don't like the car. One, you can't even qualify as a back seat, and I have a family. And two, I drink a lot of coffee, and you have no cup holders. Mm. He's like, people who buy Porsches don't buy Porsches for cup holders. I said, well, I'm the demographic who does. <laughs> I need at least five cup holders so I can empty out my car once a week. That's why I drive Suburbans and Denali's and Cadillac Escalades, uh, the excessive amount of, of coffee cup holders. But, uh, no, I, I don't – I think, to me, success isn't going to be, for me, financial going forward. Success for me is going to be what are the outcomes in my kids' life? What are the Im- impacts that Michelle and I have in their faith journey? You know, we want to launch healthy, faithful children, help them walk in that faith, help them grow their kids in a similar fashion. And then what are the impacts? Our legacy is going to be our kids and our grandkids and their kids. And so where are our, our contributions in that space uh, and how do we interact with our, our family as it continues to grow? It, it won't be so much about business growth or, you know, it, it's going to be what are we leaving behind? I can't take the stock with me. I can't bury myself with the money. So what are we doing to impact the quality of our kids and the impact they'll have on society and then their kids and on forward. That's good. <clears throat> Let me ask you a couple tactical questions. Uh, first, um, out of all the things you do with your time, because you got to be, there's got to be a lot of forces pulling on you. So you have to prioritize. You talked about that. What's one, what, if you can, what's the most important thing you do with your time to, to kind of set you up for success? If you could attribute good foundation or a a daily habit that you do? So, you know, my wife and I, we end every night uh, praying together, and you're praying forward uh, the things that you need uh, help with for the next day, right? And throughout the day, you know, I'll do little conversations and I'll have that interaction because, you know, to me, God's everywhere, so he doesn't care if I'm in a church or in this chair. And, uh, you know, look to do God's will everywhere I'm at. And so always asking for his words, his strength, his guidance, and everything I'm doing. And that allows me to have the confidence to get through the day. Because when you get out of bed, you don't know what's going to come at you. Uh, I mean, you can get a crazy rant on Facebook or a crazy employee, or you can have a school locked down because there's a long rifle behind it and turns out to be a stick. Which happened today. Yes. Just before I came in. So, you know... But having that foundation of faith brings the calming level down. And I can tell. So my wife and I watch a show called Joyce Meyer. I know Joyce on TBN Network. Uh, we watch her in the morning. Uh, if we go walking, we take Joyce with us. And so I'm sure other people walking their dogs are like, who's that loud, crazy Christian lady on, on coming out of this people's pockets? But, but having time in faith daily helps set the tone and then capping it off at the end of the night 
helps you reset the tone, right? Um, I used to say exercise. I used to get up five thirty workout, uh, and that was kind of my how do I get through the day is get that adrenaline pumping, get the blood pumping. Um, but now I think I'm getting more benefit out of the uh, faith interactions and the focus on that than I do anything else as far as being prepared for whatever's coming at me. You know, I still get angry just like everybody else. There's no perfect people, but if I can take some lesson I've learned or been exposed to and apply it to whatever's happening in the moment, then it helps bring things down a little bit, less reactive. Let's stay on the exercise thing, because I, I saw that you were an Ironman yes. in, uh, what was it, 2011? Yes. I like to think it's like the Marines. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Okay. So I guess I'm still an Ironman. Do you have the tattoo on your calf? I do not. Okay. Yeah, no. My years of service, we didn't have tattoos. Uh, that was frowned upon in the Coast Guard. <laughs> a lot of the Iron Men that complete get the uh, Iron Man tattoo on their calf, though. They do. Yeah. yeah so no. you, you, for, you forwent that. I did. As, again, I, I don't need the symbolism. I, I know that it, it was a completed task, and I'm happy to, to have accomplished that. Uh, but uh, I tell you, Jesus pedaled for 13 miles at least and carried me at least you know, one quarter of the marathon because uh, there's a little time periods of that race I don't remember, but... Jeez. Yeah. So, uh, is it? Tell me the links again, and it starts with the swim. So you start off swimming, and, and I call it more like mixed martial arts swimming, because three thousand people uh, oh, swim at the same time, two and a half miles, and uh, so it's like you're, you're getting your goggles knocked off, you're getting kicked in the head, uh, you're, you're not swimming a straight two and a half miles because you're trying to navigate through the field. Uh, once you get through that, uh, you get on your bike and ride 113 miles. Uh, small, little leisurely ride, and then uh, when you finish that, you hop off and do a full marathon, 26.2 mile uh, run for some, walk for a lot. Uh, end of the day, you've hit 140 plus miles, and you're the engine. I just volunteered for the Ironman. Uh, I think it was the eighth or tenth one that was held in the woodlands, mm-hmm. um, and I was at the. I was at the eight-mile turnaround, so people turned around twice where I was, and man, the, the second time they came around there, they were just flat-out wrecked. Uh, so what, if you can remember, what are you telling yourself to get through that last marathon, or ha- through the last half of the marathon? Yeah. What are you running through your head? How are you... So, I mean, the, uh, an Ironman, is, it's, it's a good parallel to business, uh, because, you know, you have to plan, and you have to train. Uh, and it's most folks it's at least a year of training mine was a year uh, of preparing and it's not all physical there's a lot of mental aspects to it uh, physical you have nutritional plans that you have to manage putting 140 miles on your body in a day your body doesn't store enough energy to do that at a high pace so you have to alter you know how you how you're going to compete and how you're going to how you're going to win in that environment uh and each segment's different, right? So you'll have a plan for your swim. you have a sight lines, making sure you don't get too far off course because if you end up swimming three miles, that's energy you just burned that you didn't have to spare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the bike, it's, you know, make sure you're hydrating and keeping nutrition on the right intervals. And uh, when you get to the marathon, it's just don't, don't die because you can walk a marathon and have plenty of time to finish. But uh, my, my race day, my bike broke, uh, so the second half of my bike leg, uh, was two hours plus longer than it should have been, and uh, so my plans all got wrecked 
uh, I only had enough nutrition for my plan, plus a small safety net. And uh, I burned through my safety net pretty quick. And uh, getting out there on the, uh, the marathon part of the course, you know, when I got off the bike, every nerve in my body was like I was being electrocuted. I mean, from my toes all the way up through my ears and my hair. I figured my hair was standing up like uh, Beetlejuice uh, when I got off that bike. And I remember sitting in the transition tent and wishing I was a Jedi that can masterfully move the shoes onto my feet because I couldn't bend. And uh, so that's a long year to be put in that position, right? So you're like, I really probably shouldn't do this. So I sit there and I transition for a, a little bit of time. I'm like, no, I committed to doing this race. I trained for this race just because I had this you know, issue with my bike and I'm out of energy and I'm depleted, you know, all right, where am I at now? It's 5.30. Great. What's my pace got to be to finish by midnight? Because that's all I care about is finishing at this point. All right, I'm depleted nutritionally. How long is it going to take me to rebound? Uh, what's my strategy? What are these stop points? So You started at what time in the morning? 7 a.m. 7 a.m. and you're at 5.30. Yeah. And you're saying, what pace do I need to hold so I can complete it by midnight? Yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one of my running songs came on. Bruno, it wasn't Bruno's Mars. Uh, boom Boom Pow uh, was one of those songs I was listening to when I trained. So I was like, oh, Boom Boom's on. All right, that's good. That's one of my motivational songs. So I forced my shoes on my feet. I'm like, I'm out. Took about four or five running strides and realized, yep, that's going to be a walk. And so from, from, you know, just a few feet outside the transition tent to the run course, I recognized I had no energy. So my plan had to be hydrate, refuel, hydrate, refuel. And so along that course, and you saw it if you were at those turnarounds, you'll see people walking yep. and talking to other people. And you'll see people pushing through and running. And uh, I looked at it as like, if I, if I try to do more than my body can do, I'll be done. Your body will turn itself off. It's called bonking. And and when you train, you bonk. Bonk is where you've completely depleted your body of energy, and it basically just tells you to stop. And if you don't choose to stop, it'll stop you. It's a horrible feeling. So part of the best things of training was failing in training because then you knew when you're out there in, in, in real time, hey, I'm pretty close to that feeling, <laughs> and I don't want to go there again. So, uh, yeah, ate a lot, drank a lot, and I would talk to other racers along the way, and I would try to find out what their issues and their needs were, because people were at different intervals. You know, when you're at those turns, you don't know if that's the first or second or third time the guys come by. Uh, so I would partner up with some people and say, hey, look, here's our pace. We're all good. You know, eat, drink, eat, drink. Don't overdo it. And uh, I probably walked four or five miles with this one guy who was just, very upset at himself because he couldn't run. And I was like, man, at this point, it's just about finishing. You know? Uh, he's like, I can't do it. You know, it's not, I can't be a real Ironman if I'm not running the whole thing. And I said, you know what? At the end of the day, anybody who crosses that line under 17 hours is an Ironman. And so you blew your time goal by hours, hours ago. Uh, what's 30-minute difference? Mm-hmm. Oh, I just won't be the same. I won't have it. It won't be it. So uh, I'm telling you, man, keep walking. He, when you refuel, you start to start to come back to life. You start feeling normal again. But you, you burn your energy pretty quick. 
So you have to start storing that fuel, right? Now, as soon as he started feeling good, he started running. And probably an hour later, I saw him on the side, transition tent, uh, you know, medical tent, out. Did not finish. So when I saw him there, I was like, all right, I'm going to help more people not make that mistake. And so most of my marathon, once I started feeling normal again, was helping other racers calm their anxieties about finishing, prioritizing their nutrition, looking at their paces, understanding you know what their mental goals were, and then working them through the fact they could still finish. And so I could have finished probably an hour earlier than I did, but I was really getting a lot of benefit by being able to talk and help people through where they were at because they were at where they were physically and mentally depleted a condition that I had been in a few hours earlier mm-hmm. and so I was like oh well I can help these folks and then as time went on I, I completely rebounded I was all refueled and came running across that finish line at 12 and a half miles per hour all these medical people are waiting to catch me and put me in a wheelchair and start hooking me up to an IV and I'm like no I'm totally fine like Nobody comes running across that fast at the end here, this late in the day, and be totally fine. So I've been walking, helping people out for the last couple hours. It was all good. So that was a huge challenge, to say the least, the Ironman. It was a commitment that started the day you registered. And then it was a commitment to do the training that was required to be successful, the ability to recalibrate when things don't go right, but stay to the original goal, which is just to finish. Mm -hmm. And that can be said in life, that can be said in business, that can be said in personal relationships. Things aren't always going to go the way you plan, but if you step back and you look at what is the plan, what are the goals, are you really committed to it, you really can do anything. And, and that's really, you know, the Ironman experience. So let me, let me, let's stay on challenges. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the greatest challenge you've ever faced. And I've heard about, uh, we just had a massive uh, hurricane here in the Gulf Coast. I've heard that a massive amount of people who you cover mm-hmm. uh, were, were hit by that. But I want to ask you, I don't want to lead the question, what's the greatest challenge you've ever faced and, and, and how do you overcome that? I think, I mean, more challenges are more personal, okay. you know, in relationships. I think those are much more difficult to deal with than business. You know, business is not your life. I mean, it, to some people, they make it their life, but it's not. So I'd say personal relationship uh, challenges that, that I've had in life, you know, some some of my own causing and, and some not, uh, are, are the hardest things to work through because they touch you at your core. And, um, you know, but but being able to work those through those things, uh, that really positions you to get through anything. You know, and uh, yeah, the Hurricane Harvey was was a, a big impact to the business and, and several of our of our partners. But having been through an Andrew and an Ike and a Rita, uh, we were positioned and, and conditioned to respond, and, and you know, so we were able to absorb what would have been insurmountable had we not had those past experiences, those past challenges. So everything built. But the uh, biggest challenge has probably been just balancing life, right? Uh, you know, it, it is it is difficult to have that right work-life balance. 
And uh, when you're out of balance, you don't even know it. When you're in balance, you're always afraid you're going to get out of balance again. So it's just keeping everything in check is probably the biggest challenge. It's easy for me. I, I love working. I love the community service. I love my family. I could easily disconnect and just do one of those things. But being able to continually rebalance and make sure that you're hitting on all the different cylinders, uh, that's hard. Because, you know, you get invited to do a lot of things, and you got to say no sometimes, and saying no is not easy. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah, I would, I would have to say personal life, managing your own personal life is always your biggest challenge. Let me uh, ask you if you're willing to share about a failure, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's in personal or business or military, that, is, that has helped you, or, or you learned something from a failure. Do you have any of those that stand out? Uh, you know, I, I made a bad acquisition a uh, long time ago. Uh, it cost us a million dollars. And, um, you know, that elevated our due diligence uh, scrutiny uh, tremendously. And uh, it also was an ego check on, hey, as good as I think I am, I can make mistakes too. Uh, I should have been able to catch some of the uh, inaccuracies within uh, the business we were acquiring and didn't. You know, so it's a gut check. Um, I'd say we we had a uh, technology failure last year, not of our own, but by a vendor we chose. And that nearly crippled the entire company. And it was a matter of these are top-shelf providers not executing, and it could have killed us. And so, you know, we had to retread and go back to a prior legacy system uh, reactively. And uh, it was brutal. Our first quarter last year was not fun. Um, and then, but, but we did it. And what we learned is our internal tech, our internal team was actually better than something on a top shelf that was always publicly and probably perceptually considered better by everyone, including ourselves. We thought they were better. It turns out the grass isn't greener uh, on the other shelf. And sometimes you just need to trust yourself and your team uh, that you can pull through things uh, and not rely on third parties uh, that aren't as committed to your business as you are. And so that was a pretty big one last year. That's good. A couple, couple more questions. I wanna, if you could share advice with your 35-year-old self, think back um, to when you were 35, or think of an entrepreneur who is 35 and they're starting something. Mm-hmm. What what advice would you share with them? Well, I mean, thirty five is a very specific age. Mm-hmm. Um, twenty you go twenty five. Yeah, so I, I'll give everybody some context. I started this company when I was twenty eight. Okay. Um, and advice I was given early on uh, was treat your uh, treat a nickel like it's a manhole cover. I know that's a hard visual. The manual manhole covers heavy, and it's hard to toss. A lot of businesses early on waste money. So if you look at a nickel like a manhole cover, it takes effort to move it. So manage your finances frugally, prudently, you know, because a lot of businesses that don't make it is because they don't have the capital and the cash flow to make it. Um, I think in, in the presentation we had last week or two weeks ago, personal finances are huge. You have to have your own personal finances in order. 
meaning your household overhead, your health insurance, your 401k, all the things that are personal to you, if you can't make those commitments to your family, you have to really question your business. Your friend you mentioned earlier who was committed to fail and had a backup plan. People that have backup plans have overhead, meaning they have to go do something in order to cover this overhead. If you're, if you're in a business and, or you're going into business and you, you have high overhead, go low for a while. Restructure your personal life and expenses to give your business a higher probability of success. Um, because if you're, if you're always looking over your shoulder, your you know, family's always needing money and the business doesn't have it to reinvest in the, in the company, it can be a struggle. Um, so I do think personal finances, I think having a faith is, is critical. Um, I think uh, being able to trust employees, you know, trust but verify. Uh, probably some of the best things we did early on was hiring the right people. Uh, I still have my first employee. She's on the other side of the building in her own office now. And uh, But those early employees are critical because you don't have the time to waste money. And so if I had someone to come into our office and we knew they weren't right, we didn't go through the whole, can we build them up to be the right person? Can we give them an opportunity to grow or not grow? We didn't have that option. Those early formative years, you got someone who needs development and you don't have time or resources to wait for them to develop, you've got to move on. And small companies need to do that quicker. A larger company has time to be more empathetic in developing of folks. But early stage development of a business, you can't waste time or money right because that money you're paying them is how many manholes mm. right got it that's good let me ask you uh, a couple couple principles you live by you shared a bunch uh, the other night but I want to get more specific um, personal principles maybe one or two you could share that you live by that you can say these have you, know, you talked about your faith is there anything else I mean I grew up Catholic so it's pretty uh, well ingrained in knowing not to cheat, steal, or lie. And that's kind of how I have to gauge pretty much every interaction. Uh, you want to have integrity. Integrity is a huge thing. Uh, you can't give somebody integrity. You can't learn integrity. It has to be a core within you. You know, do the right thing even if it hurts. And so, you know, we, we, we take losses, like I said, that cost us money. Uh, because it's the right thing to do. And um, so I try to hold myself to have integrity in every transaction, every interaction that I have. Uh, if I'm doing a political debate thing, I, I do my own research. I don't trust what somebody else says about anybody or anything. And uh, so if I can't put my hands on a document or a correlated uh, item to say this is what it means or this is what it says, I try not to get too far over the skis. So... Um, taking that personal accountability. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do something. And, uh, you know, that, that applies everywhere, right? You know, my kid's always trying to get me to commit to something. You know, his son last night's like, oh, I need you to get my Apple Watch fixed today, and I want you to get this thing over here for me. And I said, no. <laughs> be easy to tell you yes, but no. And, and, and my maybes are real maybe. It means maybe I'll do it, but maybe I won't. So if I tell you I'm going to do it, it's going to get done. Uh, if, if I give you the maybe or no, it's, it, that's what the answers really are. Um, and so I, I think, you know, yeah, God's at the core of everything. But 
you have to have some accountability internally and you have to have that integrity has to be ingrained in everything you're doing, you know. Uh, I don't know if that's... That's exactly what, what I wanted to, to ask you about. Yeah. Um, two more questions. First of all, I want to tell you thanks because um, uh, you, you helped us with the speaking engagements a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and uh, it was a, just a great message. Message of hope, of encouragement, don't back down. Um, but then after the speaking engagement, uh, you reached out to me the following day and you made a donation to the charity that I help run, mm-hmm. uh, which is called Bell Institute. You didn't have to do that. I didn't ask you for to, to do that, but that was just above and going above and beyond. And that, 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 that says a lot. So thank you for that. Yeah. The Woodlands Financial Group does a lot of good. Uh, I pulled this off the internet. You guys sponsor the Ironman, the TWFG Muddy Trails Bash. Um, you guys have a caring policy. You guys sponsor the American Heart Association, Susan uh, G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation, Barnabas Group, Interfaith of the Woodlands, Texas a the list goes on. Why do you give? Why do you give back to the community? Why do you give to charities? Uh, I think early on is because I didn't have time. And you want to be able to participate in some way in, in some of these areas of need. You know, Susan G. Komen's easy. My mom had breast cancer. Uh, something that occurred when I was eight and you know if I can help other families that are going through that experience I mean there's a great likelihood I'd, my mom's not here and for a lot of women that have breast cancer they don't get to make it uh, so the things I do with Cancer Society or, or Susan G are very mom focused uh, I'm just respecting the fact and being grateful that she's here so if I could help others keep their mothers uh, that would be helpful American Heart Association, my youngest son was born with a hole in his heart. Uh, he had to go to Texas Children uh, Pediatric Cardiologist. Uh, you know, I think first first year of life, it was every couple uh, weeks and then month and then over a month and then eventually his heart got to a point where uh, he's stable and okay. Uh, so there's where the Texas Children's comes from and the American Heart Association comes from. Uh, A&M, mother, in-laws, all Aggies. Oldest son's going to be an Aggie. I probably should have been an Aggie. Iron Man, I'm an Iron Man. Marathons, I've done those too. Muddy Trails is a, uh, we're no longer the, the title sponsor for that, but that was a community event and it's still being, still goes on today. Uh, but that was engaging uh, a family run with the dogs, uh, different age groups, different distances, all approachable within the community over in uh, uh, Rob Fleming Park. And then it also came with a crawfish broil uh, cooking contest. And we have a cooking team that does uh, Cajun food. Uh, so we have a team out there, and we sponsored the run. And uh, uh, so it was just a good thing. You know, CASA, kids being beaten, that's just a horrible life experience. Uh, College of the Ozarks, that's a good one. I'm reading upside down now. Uh, we know the president of the college. And that's a, a school that, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it's called Hard Work U. Tuition's free. The students uh, hold uh, most of the jobs on campus. Uh, they grow their own food. Uh, they run their own hotel. Uh, they do the maintenance of the campus. Uh, they, they essentially fundraise uh, for their education. Uh, so their education's free, but they had to work for it. And so nobody who graduates from there uh, has student debt. 
Um, they have, uh, it's a faith-based school. Uh, they have patriotism as a required course. Uh, and, you know, it, to me, it's just like what old school America is all about. Uh, so we love Dr. Uh, who's running that school. He's awesome. Uh, let's see, Barnabas is a faith-based group that meets. I'm not as active as I used to be. Politics kind of takes up that breakfast time, but that's helping smaller Christian uh, nonprofits from an executive level, providing them advice on how to advance their their cause. They bring an issue, and then a group of executives work it as a roundtable and try to help those groups implement strategy that might help them be more successful. Well, you guys, you guys give a lot. You guys, you guys help out a lot. You serve others. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I can't tell you why, other than it's just the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Help help people that you know can't help themselves if you can. Well, lastly, I want to thank you for being a part of this. If um, yeah. if somebody wants to find out more about the Woodlands Financial Group or maybe uh, an opportunity with the company, yeah. what's the best way to do that? So our main website is uh, twfg.com. Uh, that's for the Woodlands Financial Group. Uh, we do own an insurance company, uh, the Woodlands Insurance Company, and that is twico.com. Uh, that's kind of a cool site. Um, if you own a business, uh, we have a, a business-to-business insurance program where if you're you know, even the company or the nonprofit you're running, you can actually go on there and it'll run you through the advice of business insurance for your actual business, tell you the cost, all that kind of stuff. So um, for employment opportunities, uh, Gordy at TWG.com. That's my email address. I read all my own email. And if there's a position in an area, I can direct it to the right department. And then uh, for- your, your independent owners to find out more about an opportunity there. What, what's the best way for them to find that out? Uh, so on our TWFG.com site, there is uh, a lot of links into how do you partner with us gotcha. uh, if you're interested in a career. I mean, they, they, there are links there, too. Obviously, coming to me directly is probably the most responsive you're going to get. But yeah. um, there, are, there are links for career opportunities on the site. Yeah. Well, thank you for making time for this. Yeah. Thanks for uh, serving in the military, and thanks for continuing to serve. It's a, it's a pleasure to know you and, and to learn from you, Gordy. Yeah, Terry, well, I enjoyed getting to know you as well, and it's totally my pleasure to do all these things. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org. That's B-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact.